Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist and professor. Today, it's just me. I thought I would have my last episode on evolutionary psychology. I originally intended on just having one episode on evolutionary psychology, but the topic is just so interesting to me, and I and I went on all these tangents that I decided to just keep going until I ran out of episodes, and it ends up that that means five episodes, which is way more than I originally intended. But before I get into that, I just thought I'd mention that I just came from the Gay Pride Parade here in Seattle. I love Gay Pride. I think it's a wonderful movement. It's just so wonderful to see so many people showing their support. Sometimes I forget how progressive Seattle is, and I, you know, and I think about people around the country and around the world who are not exposed to, to such positive celebrations. But one criticism that I have of, of the Gay Pride Parade is, I remember before, the Gay Pride Parade was something of a spectacle. It was entertaining. It was interesting. It was over the top. It was shocking at times. The section of the parade that I saw, and I don't know if it was, I'm sure it wasn't representative of the entire parade, but the section that I saw was entirely corporate. It was Starbucks, Group Health, Microsoft, uh, these sorts of organizations. It's pretty much just a gaggle of employees dressed up in t-shirts, and they're passing out coupons for Starbucks coffee and whatnot. And although I think it's wonderful that corporate America is showing their support, and I'm all for that, but a parade is supposed to be entertaining, in my book anyway, or at least that's one of the purposes, and no part of the parade was entertaining to me, other than just people watching and, and this sort of thing. There was one moment in the parade that was mildly entertaining, and that was when the Microsoft Halo Warthog, I think they call it, it's, it's, a, it's like a big military Jeep thing, and they have the Halo is a video game, right? And so they have this um, otherworldly Jeep with these two soldiers in it. It was just kind of a surreal moment in gay pride. But what I was thinking was that these different organizations that show up in the parade should really spend more time trying to be entertaining. I don't know, like a, like a joke, you know, maybe they just cycle through 10 jokes. And so there's something or they should hire maybe a dancer or something. I don't know. It just, it just lacked the excitement that I remember gay pride used to have. Now, again, I will say I'm a hundred percent for it. Everyone looked like they were having a great time. People were screaming and cheering nonetheless, even though it wasn't very entertaining. Um, so it was certainly a great time, but when you look at it from a certain angle, it almost looks like just one big corporate advertisement. I mean, I guess it's hard to motivate volunteers to just get together and try to entertain the masses for free. It's much more likely that a corporation is going to take advantage of the free advertising and pass out coupons to try to drum up business to you know raise their profits. The other thing I saw was a man holding a sign in front of the Space Needle and preaching Christianity, holding a Bible. I'm sure he knew what he was doing. He, I, I live next to the Space Needle, and I've never seen him here before, and he just showed up for gay pride. And he's yelling at the top of his lungs, not in a hostile way, but just in a loud way, the typical things that a street-side preacher will say denounce your idols, Jesus is our Lord, this sort of thing. And at first I thought, 
oh boy, this guy is really asking for it. Because he's he's standing at Gay Central on what people call Gay Day, and he's right in the middle of Gay Pride. And at first, no one was really paying much attention to him. I, I did hear a teenage girl say, it was an African-American family, and, and the, the girl said uh, something hostile about him. And the mom said, well, everyone has their beliefs and, you know, we can't put down people for their beliefs. Uh, so I thought it was a nice little exchange there. But uh, later I saw a whole group of queer youth standing around him and debating with him. Some, some were debating with him in a loud but respectful way while some guys in the back were just screaming insults at him. <laughs> And I don't know, it was just interesting. I stopped and listened to them go back and forth. I thought it was just an interesting sign of our times that there's a sea of people, young and old, from all walks of life, from all parts of the region. And, you know, it just looked like a regular parade day with all the regular people, <laughs> average Americans. And there's a lone man standing amongst everybody preaching Christianity and, and not overtly saying that homosexuality is wrong, but intimating that. And around him are all these empowered queer youth debating with him in a respectful way. If an alien came down to the Space Needle at that moment, and of course aliens would be attracted to the Space Needle, it is called the Space Needle after all, and saw this, they would, they would assume that Christians were the minority and that queer youth ruled the world. <laughs> and of course, that is just not the case. So Seattle, in some ways, is like bizarro world where everything is backwards in a good way. Not that Christians should be oppressed or put down. I actually believe that uh, Christians in Seattle are oppressed in some ways, if you can accept that a dominant culture can be oppressed within a certain context. Anyway, how am I getting on that topic? All right, back to evolutionary psychology. Actually, no, uh, before I go on to evolutionary psychology, I have a note here to remind me to talk a little bit about graduation at Antioch that just happened last week. One of the most wonderful things about being a professor is being able to go to graduation and celebrate with the students. Every year we have a graduation ceremony at Antioch and there's about, I don't know, two, three hundred students that choose to participate in the ceremony. And in the psychology school, it's probably, I don't know, a hundred students that, that go through it. And we're all dressed up in our regalia. The professors have all their fancy hats on and their fancy robes and the fancy colors. And the students are so happy and they're with their family. And I think it's really worth celebrating. Because these students could do anything with their life. They're often going in huge amounts of debt to pursue this career, and they could have pursued any career. But these students chose a career in psychology because they wanted to make a difference in the world. They wanted to make the world a better place. And there's not a whole lot of money in psychology. There's not a whole lot of money in counseling. There is some money. You can make a pretty good living, especially when you compare yourself to the rest of the world. But they could have chosen a career in business or in computers and earned a lot more, but they didn't. They, they decided they wanted to make the world a better place. And I just find that to be an incredible, noble act. 
And so when the students are graduating and they're all happy and their families are there cheering them on and the professors are cheering them on, I just find it to be this really wonderful moment. One thing that I think about when I'm looking at all those students is I think about the amount of hours that all of them collectively spent on their schoolwork. School takes a lot of time. Graduate school takes a lot of time. And when I look at all of them, I just think collectively, how many papers were written? How many pages were read? How many presentations were given? How many tears were shed? How many internship hours were clocked? I would say that the average master's level student spends about, I don't know, rough estimate, 4,000 hours dedicated to their graduate school. Doctoral level people probably spend, I don't know, 9,000 hours when I think about it, when I add up all the class time and the homework time and the internship time. Doctoral students probably spend $130,000 and master's level people spend, I don't know, fifty to $60,000, um, I think. So when I go to graduation, those are some of the thoughts that go through my mind. And I just marvel at the amount of giving that these people have given to the world. It's also wonderful to meet the students' families and partners and parents and children. And So getting back to evolutionary psychology. So evolutionary psychology in a nutshell I've described it in more detail in previous episodes, but but just in a nutshell, basically the, the main tenet of evolutionary psychology, in my view, mainstream evolutionary psychology, is that hundreds of thousands of years ago, humans evolved particular psychological mechanisms in response to their environment through the process of evolution. So the, the classic example that I've discussed before is our craving for sugars, fats, and salts. On the African Pleistocene savanna, humans were in an environment where there was not a lot of fats, fatty foods, not a lot of you know sugary foods, high caloric foods, and not a lot of salt around. But in order to survive, we need those things. High caloric foods are, are very nutritious for us, give us a lot of energy. And salt is something that we need in moderation. And fiber and other such foods were abundant. So take this example. You have two tribes of people. One tribe has the psychological mechanism that compels them toward fats, toward sugars, and toward salty things. So it creates motivation. They're willing to travel a mile to gather fruit, or they're willing to spend half the day hunting game or searching for dead carcasses to scavenge. They're willing to travel far to get salt. I don't know, where would people get salt in the African savanna back then? So that's one tribe, and, and they all have that psychological mechanism. It's, it's an instinct. It's something that they're born with. It's innate. Then another group, another tribe of humans, early humans, they don't have that. When, when they taste a grape, they're like, yeah, it's good, but, you know, it's not any better than all this fibrous stuff that we eat every day, so whatever. So the idea goes is that the tribe of people who have this innate craving for fats and sugars and salts will be more likely to survive because they will do the necessary behaviors to get those things and therefore be more nourished and more likely to survive and more likely to have children and therefore more likely to pass on that innate genetic disposition 
to have the psychological mechanism to crave those things. Whereas the other tribe that doesn't crave those things are more likely to become malnourished, more likely to die before having children, or more likely to not be able to care for their children because they're not roaming the savanna looking for these nutritious foods. And so therefore, they're, they're not going to pass on their genes to the next generation. And over time, through evolution, the psychological mechanism for these cravings gets selected and becomes a universal human trait. Now, in today's world, our environment is flip-flopped. It's completely the opposite that it, of what it was on the African Pleistocene savanna, where fibrous foods and fruits and vegetables are not as abundant as sugars and fats and salty things. Just walk into a American convenience store and that's all the proof you need. It's filled with sugar, fats, potato chips, soda, cheese. And, and these are all good things for us, but not in the amounts that we eat them now because we crave these things. When we see them, we really want to shove them in our mouth and now all the doctors are telling us we need to eat more fiber. So, so I think most of us can agree that we evolved that psychological mechanism because it seems to be universal across cultures and, and, and really makes logical sense. But, but from there, evolutionary psychologists start making a lot of claims that get, in my opinion, more and more speculative. All right, well, let's get into some of the research in evolutionary psychology. Today, I want to talk about violence and evolutionary psychology. Basically, in mainstream evolutionary psychology, they believe that humans evolved both antisocial and prosocial psychological mechanisms, and that these antisocial mechanisms were adaptations for the purpose of survival and reproduction, you know, for evolution. So much of my knowledge about evolutionary psychology and violence comes from an article written by Goetz in 2010. The article is called The Evolutionary Psychology of Violence, published in Psychothema. So in this article, Goetz provides the following evidence that violence is hardwired and innate in human beings. The first bit of evidence that Goetz gives is that Skeletal remains of ancient humans show direct evidence of violent, purposeful injuries inflicted by other humans. Basically, through archaeology, we have learned that uh, by looking at the bones of early humans, that some humans died at the hands of other humans. I'm guessing that they, they find um, injuries to the skull, for instance, that show signs that it was done by a weapon and therefore not an animal attack or a fall out of a tree or something. So right there, and I can't help but critique things as I go along, just because archaeologically we've found evidence of violence among humans doesn't mean that it's quote-unquote innate. These people in the past had a culture as well. It's not like culture and learning suddenly spring into existence 5,000 years ago. It, it was around back then, just like it is today. I'm sure the culture was very different, but it was a culture nonetheless. But some people say that the United States has a culture of violence and a culture of guns, and it's reflected in our behavior. I think, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but Americans are much more likely to murder each other with guns than people in other cultures. So is it an innate that we're 
violent or is it a part of our culture? Well, it's, you know, seems it's a difficult question to, to answer. It's probably both. Um, but according to Getz, this skeletal evidence of early humans is proof that violence is hardwired and innate, which is um, a problematic argument. Uh, the, the second bit of evidence that Getz provides that is evidence of violence being innate and hardwired and something that we're born with is when anthropologists look at modern day hunter gatherer societies, you know, like they'll come upon these remote villages of people who have almost no contact with the outside world. They find that homicide rates in many of these societies are much greater than even the most violent American cities. So the assumption here is that these modern-day hunter-gatherer societies are identical to the societies that existed 200,000 years ago in Africa. And we can look at them as a reflection of the way we were before. And as I've said in previous episodes, there's big problems with that. One, when they actually study these various different hunter-gatherer societies around the globe, they find that they are very different from each other. And therefore, you can't say that the hunter-gatherer societies were the same as we were in the African Pleistocene savanna when they're all different from each other. So there's that. The other thing is, is to me, is that these modern-day hunter-gatherer societies have culture. It's not like they don't have a culture. So particular hunter-gatherer societies, say in the middle of Brazil or Indonesia or something, or Papua New Guinea, these societies could d develop a particularly violent culture, while others could develop a particularly nonviolent culture based on the decisions made by the people in that society. But, in, but to some extent, I would agree that there is evidence that violence is innate in humans because violence seems to be something that is committed around the globe, regardless of culture. Also, another bit of evidence that they didn't identify in this article was that babies are violent with each other sometimes. And you could say that a six-month-old baby in all likelihood has, has not been exposed. Certainly there are six-month-old babies that have, that have been exposed to a lot of violence, but I would say that many have not. And, you know, you'll witness them when they're frustrated. Sometimes they'll strike people or throw things at people. I think most parents can recall a time or many times where they would have, have to intervene or discipline their children for hitting another child or for throwing something at the parents themselves. I think it is innate in that way. And they didn't identify studies with infants, which um, would have sold it for me. But anyway, um, another thing, uh, another bit of evidence that they say is evidence that violence is hardwired and innate is that chimpanzees and other mammals seem to use violence strategically. Um, they seem to use aggression strategically to negotiate socially. And another piece of evidence that they use in the article that suggests that violence is hardwired and innate is that men have a lot of upper body strength in comparison to women. And it is assumed that men evolved greater upper body muscle mass because it's crucial for man-on-man -man combat, for combat with other humans. Uh, they gave a statistic that said that 
men evolved 90% greater upper body strength than women. So I think that basically means that men are typically almost twice as strong in their upper body than women are. So this is an interesting idea. Um, you know, men are taller on average. Men are stronger on average than women. Certainly there are plenty of women that are much stronger than the average man. But when you look at large groups of people, the bell curve of strength and of upper body strength in particular, the, the mean strength of men is higher than the mean strength of women. So why would this be? Clearly, we evolved to be that way. Is it just a side effect of some other evolutionary process? Or did we specifically evolve as men to have greater upper body strength because it was adaptive for men to be able to fight each other? So this is all evidence, supposedly, that violence is hardwired into us, that we're born with the instinct to be violent with each other. The author goes on to discuss previous research documenting that the majority of homicides occur between unrelated men over threats to status, which I thought was interesting. So when people kill each other, it's most, like, it's, it's most often men killing men, and it's most often men killing men that are not related to them, men that aren't close to them, and that... When they look at it in a particular way, it seems that most men kill other men be, because they feel that their status is threatened. And anecdotally, I, I certainly can see that being true. I've had some clients that were gang members. And I remember one who was shot and almost killed. And I talked with him after um, he recovered from his injuries and he and he told me the story and I couldn't believe how petty it all seemed. He said that he heard uh, some other rival gang members talking shit about him. I think it was something like some other gang member was not in a strong way but was just suggesting that he was a wimp or something. And it sounded like one of those rumors that just begins in a really harmless way. That, that, that happen all the time in high schools and, 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 re, and frankly, with adults as well. But because these guys take these sorts of things extremely seriously, they escalated back and forth, and later that day, he was shot. And a number of other people were shot as well. All because of a rumor that someone was talking shit about someone else. So this is a threat to one's status, and it almost resulted in a homicide of my client. Incidentally, after he was shot, he had denounced his gang and he said he, he will never go back to it because, you know, he should have died and he was in the hospital for a long time and he reconnected with his family and everything seemed to be going well. And as soon as his body recovered and he was free from the treatments and the physical rehab and all that stuff... He instantly went back to the gang life. And right now, I don't know if he's okay or not. So again, at mainstream evolutionary psychology. Mainstream evolutionary psychology proposes that men evolved the psychological mechanism to become violent in response to threats of status. And that men evolved the psychological mechanism through sexual selection. In other words, that women would choose men that were violent in response to threats of status 
as opposed to men who did not. Now, why would early humans choose those males? Well, I think as the theory goes, they originally had evolved a psychological mechanism to choose men that were dominant because men who were dominant tended to have more access to resources like food and this sort of thing, shelter, and social support, and that these benefits were beneficial to the reproductive success of that coupling. So it's complicated, but, um, but anyway, so I just want to pause here and say that this is mainstream evolutionary psychology thought, and in my mind, it, it hasn't been established as fact yet. There are certain things that I, again, I think we can say with a lot of confidence, like we evolved the psychological mechanism to crave fats and sugars and salt. Um, I think to me that the evidence is there and it all makes sense. But how do we know that machismo was selected for? It's very speculative. It's hard to know what we were like 200,000 years ago. If we had a time machine and went back 300,000 years ago to the African Pleistocene savanna, we might find that men were quite docile. We don't know. Certainly, there was violence at times, but maybe 99.99% of the time, the males were very docile and, and very cooperative. We, you know, we don't know. Or we might go back in time and find that they were incredibly violent with each other and that highly dominant large males became the alpha male and had huge harems of lots of women while many other men didn't have a, a partner at all. We just don't know. And, and again, there's a lot of archaeological and anthropological evidence pointing us in different directions. But if you read enough history, you realize that at any given time, we're probably wrong about some things, if not a lot of things. And without a time machine, we'll just never know. But let me just discuss a little bit about the innateness of male machismo and, and violence. I think, you know, when I talk about it, I have this vision in my head, modern day males of, of being, you know, the sort of Ed Hardy guy or uh, the bodybuilder guy or the bouncer at the club who just has a very itchy trigger to be violent with people. Certainly not all bouncers are like that, but so that's sort of the image I have in my head about this super macho, quick-to-be-violent sort of guy. And then I say to myself, well, that's a very small percentage of the population. I mean, I'm thinking like 1% of males are like that. I mean, the vast majority of males are, in general, not violent and not very macho, depending on the culture, of course. But when I think anecdotally about my own life as a, as a man, and when I think about the males that I know, friends, if I broaden the definition of machismo and violence, I would say that all the men that I know have a tendency to be violent. For instance, I have a friend who is pretty timid and, you know, he's a computer nerd and everyone would say that he's just the nicest guy on the planet. But I've been with him through thick and thin, and I have seen him get extremely angry, and if, if he was pushed to a certain level, he would definitely get violent. And most people wouldn't imagine that he was capable of that. Uh, I remember one time we were driving. He was driving, and I was in the passenger seat, and some frustrating thing was happening. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I think we were lost, and there were other cars in his way, and he lost it. 
if there weren't laws in place and if he could have gotten out of the car and went up to the other person in the car that was bothering him, I'm pretty sure he would have tried to punch him. I mean, at the very least, he probably had a fantasy about punching someone, including maybe even me. I don't know. So again, total docile, nice guy would never hurt a fly and probably never has. But that violent urge definitely has emerged in him in the in the times when I've seen him very frustrated. So that's what I think of when I think of the possibility that it's innate in us. And now that I'm thinking about it, I've always wondered why people get so angry when they're driving their car as opposed to when they're not. You know, you're driving in the city and someone cuts you off. You're only going like 10 miles an hour, so it's not a life-threatening situation. But a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people will scream obscenities and, and you know be extremely hostile. Sometimes they might lay on the horn or flip the bird, but, but anyway, they get pretty angry. Whereas if you're in the supermarket and you're moving your cart down the aisle and someone cuts you off, I would find that the same person would be extremely unlikely to, to say anything to that person. They might secretly in their head think that the other person was rude, but um, it's not likely that they're going to say something. Certainly other people who would say something, but most people in my experience don't. So why is this? It might be because of this innate psychological mechanism to be violent. We might have an innate desire to some extent to be hostile and to be violent with other people, a drive, if you will, a need to express that side of ourselves. And since society has taught us that that's wrong, when we're at the supermarket, if we were to be violent with, with another person, people would know it. We would have consequences. Whereas when you're in your car, you can scream all you want, and it's, there's not likely to be a consequence. Now, every once in a while, it does escalate to that point where people do get out of their cars and start fighting. But usually, it, it just amounts to just screaming obscenities. And So sometimes I, I wonder if we all have this primal urge to strike other people that the psychological mechanism was selected for because it helped in our survivability and therefore our ability to reproduce. But in our modern society, we don't really have a venue for that violence or that aggression because we've deemed it not only illegal, but also socially problematic. So if we have this drive, maybe we look for ways to express it And what better place to express it than when we're in our car, in our anonymous box, and we can scream all we want. Just an idea. So also in this article by by Getz, Getz talks about left-handedness. So it's, you know, it's this kind of weird thing that most humans are, quote-unquote, naturally right-handed, and that a small percentage are left-handed. Why would this be? Well, Getz discusses the hypothesis that humans evolved to occasionally be left-handed because it serves as an advantage when men attack other men. So as I talk about this, just understand that this seems extremely speculative and uh, it seems a little out there to some extent. I mean, it could be true, but there's just no evidence of it. But anyway, uh, Getz says that left-handed sports players have an advantage. So when you're left-handed as a in baseball, you have an advantage for various reasons that I won't go into. So they use that, the fact that 
left-handed sports players sometimes have an advantage. They use that as evidence that left-handed men in the African Pleistocene savanna had an advantage in hand-to-hand combat. So I guess the idea would go that, say, you are a man 200,000 years ago, you might learn to fight other right-handed people. So, for instance, if you're right-handed, you you might tend to attack with your right side. And so when you come upon a man, another man, you might tend to defend your left side because you know that the other person being right-handed, they're going to tend to want to attack your left side. And so you defend with your left arm and you fight with your right arm. Well, if a left-handed person comes to you and they're attacking from the other side, then they might end up winning more often. And therefore, because of this advantage, it will increase the survivability and therefore the ability to reproduce of that left-handed person. So those who know about evolution and evolutionary psychology will immediately, will immediately see a lot of problems with that. But I just thought it was a, an interesting thing that gets brought up. So another thing that gets talks about in the article that I actually can agree with, I can get on board with, is that since our African ancestors did not have modern weaponry, such as guns and, and other such things like tanks and stuff, but, but mainly guns, handguns, our psychological mechanism to be violent was not very often lethal. So 100,000 years ago, or even 5,000 years ago, or even 300 years ago, when you had a violent urge toward another person, you would pick up a stick or you would just start hitting them with your hands. And the chance that that will result in someone being killed is much lower than if all you have to do is pull a gun out of your pocket and shoot someone in the head. So because of this environmental mismatch between the African Pleistocene savanna where there were no weapons or there were very limited weapons, like, you know, there'd only be sticks and stones and this sort of thing, or, you know, makeshift knives, knives that don't work so well. So you have that environment. And then our modern environment where guns are aplenty, particularly in the States, because of that difference in environment, our innate psychological mechanism for violence produces much more homicide than it would have in the past. Uh, and this this actually makes sense to me. So, in other words, we may have evolved as males to respond to threats to our status by getting violent. And so, again, prior to a few hundred years ago, that would result in people punching each other or pushing each other or this sort of thing. Maybe some injuries, but both people are able to live another day. The dispute would be over, and and there you have it. But in today's world, you just pick, a, pick up a gun and shoot the person. It's so much easier to pull a trigger than it is to get in a scruff with someone physically. It's very difficult to dominate someone physically and to get out of a fight without being injured yourself. Whereas if you sneak up on someone with a gun, it's very easy to inflict a lot of damage on the other person without incurring any damage yourself. So I thought that was an interesting point that, that, I, can, that I can understand. That makes sense to me. When I, when I think of this, I think of my cats. My cats will often attack each other. They, they don't like each other very much. I, I wish they did, but they don't. And they will frequently, in a vicious way, communicate to each other that they don't like each other, that they don't like the other cat in their personal space. 
And I'm pretty convinced if they had the ability to grab a gun with their little paws, they would probably try to shoot each other. (laughs) I've never really thought about that. But with the amount of viciousness that they have for each other, with the amount of hissing and screaming and scratching and biting that they can get into, sometimes I'll come home and there will be just fur in one corner of my home, just bits of different colored fur everywhere. And the only explanation I can come up with is that they had a major fight in that corner of the home. So, you know, I would imagine that if they could just press a, a button and, and nuke the other cat, they would have done so a long time ago. But since we evolved in, in an environment that didn't have these weapons, it was okay to have these vicious thoughts and motivations towards other humans because it wouldn't wipe out other humans. It would just communicate to the other humans that we mean business. All right, so in the Getz article, they, the author also identifies experimental research which tests the hypothesis about whether or not men have evolved a psychological mechanism for violence regarding threats to status. In this research, they experimented on men. They, they took one group of men and read a, a scenario involving a status competition, like um, competing for a promotion at work. And then they took another group of men and, and read them a different sort of scenario. So this is supposed to prime certain men to have status threats on their mind. So they would read a story to a group of men like, a man is at work and he is vying for a promotion with another coworker and stakes are high and that sort of thing. Then they would tell another just random story to another group of men. And then, and then they had an experimenter, an actor accidentally spill a drink onto the men. And they found that on average, the men who were read the competitive story, the story about competing for a promotion at work, the men who were read that story were much more likely to respond aggressively than the people who were not read that story. So, and as I've said in previous episodes, this is interesting and it's good data, but it doesn't necessarily point to an innate tendency to be violent when our status is threatened. It's very possible that men in certain cultures have learned to respond aggressively when their status is threatened. I mean, we certainly see that modeled in other people's behavior and maybe even directly in our own father's behavior. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's innate, but Getz claims that it does. They also found that when men were read a scenario involving going on a date with a highly desirable woman, these men were also more likely to respond aggressively when another male spilled a drink on them. So I always find it interesting when I'm reading studies like this, the interpretation of the data depends on the field of the evaluator. So if a social psychologist were to look at this data, they would say, well, clearly we've been socialized to become aggressive when we have threats to our status. And men are socialized even more so in this way. But the evolutionary psychologist, when he or she looks at this data, they say, well, clearly we have an innate tendency to be violent when we have threats to our status. We evolved that mechanism because it helped in our survival and our reproductive fitness. And maybe both are right, or maybe both are wrong. But I just find it fascinating that even though scientists are trained to be objective and to take into account such possibilities, they rarely acknowledge them. 
And my only explanation for this is that they've either been brainwashed by one particular camp or the other, or in order to get published, they have to make interesting claims. And I think culturally and psychology, depending on the camp that you're in, it's more interesting when your claim seems more definitive or more sure than if you say things like, here's the data and we don't know what to make of it. Here are five possibilities. I rarely see that in research. It's usually, here's the data, here's what it tells us, and there you go. At the very end, they might identify some limitations, but usually, in my experience, scientists will identify limitations that don't completely challenge their, their findings. They'll pick some easy limitation, like some minor methodological issue that doesn't completely invalidate what they've done. So Getz also talks about sexual jealousy and domestic violence, which I thought was interesting. So get ready to cringe on this one. Getz explains the mainstream evolutionary psychological perspective regarding jealousy. Getz says that jealousy is an evolved psychological mechanism to deal with women who may have or currently threatened their male partner's fitness by having sex with other men. So in other words... Getz and other mainstream evolutionary psychologists believe that men in our species evolved the psychological mechanism, the innate instinct to feel jealousy and to become violent with their women partners when their women partners are threatening to cheat on them. The belief is that, and this is quite common to evolutionary psychologists, this belief, the belief is that when in ancient times, if there were two different couples and in one couple, the man doesn't get jealous or violent when the woman, when his wife flirts with other men. And then another couple, you have a, a man who becomes more stereotypically jealous and also violent in the face of threats to his status and in the face of his wife flirting with other people or other guys coming around, that sort of thing. And the idea in evolutionary psychology is that the second man who gets jealous is more likely to reproduce because he's going to keep his woman away from other men and therefore keep his woman from getting pregnant with other men. So this view of jealousy is pretty common, but this additional view of domestic violence as being a psychological mechanism that men evolved the innate instinct to actually become violent with their wives when there are threats of infidelity. So men would become extremely controlling, that will dominate their female partner to make sure she doesn't get impregnated by someone else. So I would imagine this would be a very controversial idea to claim that domestic violence and the oppression of women is an innate instinct within men is politically problematic in that some people would say that when you claim that something is natural or in us or innate or instinctual, that somehow it justifies it. And a lot of those people in evolutionary psychology would say that just because something is innate doesn't mean that it's okay. But often evolutionary psychology findings are used this way, not only by psychologists, but by other people. So if we put that aside and just sort of try to look objectively at this, I, I would say that, yeah, it's possible that we as men have evolved 
an instinct to control women when we are worried that they are going to cheat on us. We certainly see that behavior a lot in various cultures. In some cultures, it's within the legal system where men are legally allowed to control their women and even beat them under some circumstances. So we can certainly see that it is present across cultures. I don't know about all cultures. I don't know if anyone knows that answer, but it seems to be you know fairly prevalent. So I could see that. I could see how if one tribe, the, the men tended to get a little jealous sometimes and maybe even a little violent at times to keep their wives from being impregnated by someone else, then I, I could see that trait being selected for. Does that make it right? Absolutely not. It's not right at all. Nature doesn't necessarily know morality or fairness. Nature is sometimes unfair. And if, if this is an instinct in men that we evolved, then certainly this would be an example of how nature is quote unquote unfair. In other words, being unfair to women. But how do you prove this? It's very difficult because men, boys around the world are raised in cultures that teach boys that they are allowed to do this and, and should do it. And the f little girls are raised in these cultures where they're taught that they should allow this to happen. So how do we know if it's instinct or not? It's impossible to tell. But evolutionary psychologists claim that it's obviously an instinct. So along these lines, other authors and other thinkers in evolutionary psychology, including David Buss, have talked about the gender differences regarding jealousy, stating that men evolved to become jealous about sex, meaning that men are jealous of their wives having sex with other people, whereas women evolved a psychological mechanism to become jealous about their husbands being emotionally involved with other people and not sexually involved with other people. The idea here is that because women only have one egg a month or so, and men have billions of sperm, that as long as the woman gets one of those sperm, she doesn't care if he spreads his sperm around to other people. And that what she's really concerned about is whether or not he's going to stick around and help her raise the children. So she, she will not get jealous if he has sex with someone else, but she will get jealous if he starts spending time with someone else. So ancient women would have evolved a psychological mechanism to feel jealousy when their men are emotionally cheating. And men, since their wives only have one egg, they really need to make sure that that one egg is theirs as it is, is fertilized by themselves. And because women don't have a lot of indicators as to whether or not they're ovulating or not, they have to keep constant vigil on their women and make sure that their women never get out of their sight and have sex with someone else. So that's a crude way of describing it, but it's the basic gist of it. And I'm not saying I agree with it. It certainly isn't a very good way to live one's life, right? To control each other and be jealous of each other in that way. But that's the idea behind the theory. So like a broken record, I'm going to critique this in that it's impossible to know if it's culture or not. We are taught from a very young age what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl and what we're supposed to value. And we certainly teach our young men that they are going to be ridiculed if they're 
girlfriends or wives cheat on them sexually. And we teach young girls that love and, and uh, male attention is very important. And if that attention goes somewhere else, then they are going to experience ridicule. It's in movies, it's in songs, it's in our parents' behavior, it's in TV shows and books. And how do we know that the differences we see in men and women as adults, how do we know it's not due to culture um, instead of an innate psychological mechanism? We don't know. And we might not ever know. Because, as I've said in previous episodes, in order to really test this, we would have to raise a bunch of humans in a biodome away from culture and experiment on them and see if these innate instincts emerge. And of course, that's not ethical and would would never happen. So other research and other writing and evolutionary psychology goes into when sexual jealousy results in murder and how evolutionary psychologists look at this. So occasionally, as we all know, sexual jealousy results in the killing of the wife. And I should pause here and say that I'm talking strictly heterosexually here because in evolutionary psychology, homosexuality really challenges a lot of their theories and therefore they just ignore it. And really in science in general, they will tend to ignore homosexuals. So at first glance, evolutionary psychologists will say that murdering one's wife must be an accidental overuse of the evolved behavior of domestic violence since it eliminates the wife and therefore you can't have children with that person. So why would we evolve something that would end up killing one's chances of even having children? Well, David Buss and others uh, will point out that the challenge to this accidental hypothesis is that a number of men actually intentionally kill their wife when they are experiencing sexual jealousy. So now we have to look at why we may have evolved the psychological mechanism to intentionally be murderous of one's wife. So David Buss and, and others hypothesize that men evolved a specific psychological mechanism for killing one's wife under extreme sexual jealousy due, due to the following reasons. They believe that if a wife is going to abandon the man in an extreme manner, then he doesn't have a chance to impregnate her anyway and might as well kill her. You know, say, for instance, you have an ancient male and as the theory goes, if his wife is cheating on him all the time, then he's basically lost all hope of being able to be the father of her children. And therefore, when he feels sexual jealousy, he might as well kill her because she's not going to bear his children anyway. And again, I'm not saying I'm in support of this theory. I'm just saying this is what they say. Another reason why men may have evolved a psychological mechanism to intentionally kill their wife when experiencing sexual jealousy is that the wife may channel her reproductive resources to another man, thereby increasing the competitor's reproductive success and by extension lowering his own reproductive success. So in other words, if you have an ancient man and his wife is cheating on, on him, then if he doesn't kill her, then she is going to become the wife of someone else and have someone else's child and therefore give an advantage to another male, which by extension lowers his own reproductive success. So he might as well 
killer. And again, as I say this, it's ridiculous because according to this theory, as this theory goes, it's like, why don't men just kill all other men? Like, why don't we have this innate instinct to kill all men so that we're the only one who impregnates anybody on the planet? And of course, we just don't see that in our behavior. And and they're not saying that, uh, but they're kind of saying that. Um, And the last reason they say as to why men may have evolved a psychological mechanism to intentionally kill their wives when experiencing sexual jealousy is that to let her live will incur the additional costs of damaging his reputation, which will ultimately damage his chances with subsequent women. So in other words, in the social context, when you have a man who is being cheated on by his wife and everyone knows about it, then if he doesn't kill her, then it's humiliating to him and will make it so that he doesn't look attractive to other women. Whereas if he kills her, then everyone knows that he's a strong man and won't take that kind of stuff and his status will be upheld in the social tribe, in the, in the social realm. And, as, and when I read this, it, it sort of made sense to me, but as I say it out loud, it just sounds ridiculous. I mean, it could be true, I suppose, but it, it just sounds really problematic, not only politically, of course. Uh, of course it's problematic politically, but, but in terms of logic, um, there's so many assumptions there. We assume that ancient societies would value a man killing his wife when he's sexually jealous over a man just letting her go when he's being cheated on. And, you know, that's, that's quite a leap. So to Getz's credit, at the end of the article, Getz provides the following quote. So, quote, Any honest discussion of human aggression must concede that evolution is responsible. But this concession does not suggest that all forms of human aggression are engendered by specialized evolved mechanisms that were directly selected for, unquote. So, Basically, what Getz is saying here is that it's possible that some forms of human aggression are cultural or learned or caused by some other issue other than an evolved psychological mechanism, which is a responsible statement. And as usual, if, they, if evolutionary psychologists have this sort of statement, which they rarely do, if they do have it, it's usually buried at the end instead of being right up front with it or sprinkled throughout which would be my preference. So it's somewhat responsible, but Getz doesn't actually specifically say cultural learning. It Getz just says that all forms of human aggression may not be caused by psych- psychological mechanisms, but doesn't say what those other factors might be. And again, culture would be the biggest thing on my list. All right, well, that does it for the psychology portion of the episode. I thought I would end the episode with a talk about music My band is called Bread Knife Incident, and if you're interested, you can go to iTunes and purchase some of my band's music. Uh, The band that I'm in includes me, uh, singer-guitarist, and Brant Scanlon on bass, and Carlos Padilla-Klein on drums. We're just a trio. So I thought I would play a song from one of our albums and talk about it because some people have been saying that they find it interesting when I talk about uh, music. So let's just go to that clip.
So this song is called Seattle. And again, whenever I read, read lyrics, I always feel like a pretentious beat poet. So please um, bear with me here. So the lyrics go, It is June, misty rain. In Seattle, do I mind? Not at all. What's the sun? Can't recall. Go outside, cloudy sky. Go inside, with her lie. Satisfied or complain? Can't decide. She says, I have ADD, never am satisfied with the one in my hand, can't decide. Just go out, just go outside, just go outside, and then the wind will decide. So this song is about a few things. One, it's about Seattle weather. Uh, I wrote this song in the month of June when it was raining, uh, one of the things that a lot of people in Seattle lament is that when summer starts in June, it's still kind of like spring and it's still rainy. Uh, summer typically doesn't get going in Seattle until July. So I say, you know, it's June, there's misty rain, it's in Seattle, do I mind? No, I don't. You know, what's the sun? I can't recall. In this is also the, the idea that in Seattle, we have lots of different words for rain because we see a lots, lots of different kinds of rain. In Seattle, it almost never rain rains. It, it almost never just pours rain where, where you get wet when you go outside. A lot of the rain in Seattle, you can walk around in without an umbrella and not really get that wet because it's just sort of misty. For a long time, I never owned an umbrella, even though I lived in Seattle. I would just go out into the rain and just know that I wasn't going to get soaked. Whereas I find in other parts of the world when it rains, it really rains, you know, it's just like, like downpour rain. That's why actually when you look at rainfall in terms of inches, Seattle doesn't get that much more than other places. It's just that it's more often raining and cloudy in Seattle than it is in other cities. And as in other songs, I like to write about a fictional person. I like to write about fictional situations. I like stories. I think in another life, I would love to have been a novelist or a screenwriter or something. I just really love hearing stories about people. And so in my lyrics, I think this part of me kind of comes out and the the scenario that i had in my mind when i was reading when i was writing these lyrics was of a guy that's stuck inside with someone that he's dating but he can't decide whether or not he likes her or not and he's never satisfied with the one that he's with and he's always trying to move on to the next thing and he has ADD about women. He just can't seem to focus on one woman at a time. And the advice that comes from the universe, or the, it's hard to say whether or not this is advice from the universe or advice from himself, but he says, just go outside. Just, just go outside and let the wind decide. So, and that's the chorus. Just go outside and then the wind will decide. Um, this idea that it's just like, well, just keep moving. Just, just see what the universe does with you. Um, if you can't make a decision about what to do, just do something. Don't just sit inside and wait for the world to come to you. Go to the world and, and just see what happens. I don't know if that's good advice or bad advice, honestly, but, but that's the advice that came out of this song. And again, I don't know if the advice is coming from the universe or God or from someone that this character knows or from the character himself. I don't really know, but the advice is there. So let's go to that chorus.
So what can I say about this song? Well, the one thing I remember about this song was that the bassist wrote the very first bit about it. Oftentimes, in between playing songs, the musicians in the band, including myself, will sometimes just kind of mess around. And, and usually it's just little riffs that you play and little bits that come out of you. But every once in a while, something will come out of one of us where we'll go, whoa, what was that? Let's, let's expand on that little thing. And the, the part that Brant, the bassist, played was it was, some kind of, um, it was some kind of descending riff of some kind. And then we just built upon that. And then I took that and locked myself in a room for a while and ended up writing the rest of the song. And, and that's the song that came out. Um, if you listen closely, you can hear the bassist playing some extremely interesting notes, and it really fills out the sound. The guitar part is actually pretty simple. I like the guitar part, but my guitar part's pretty simple. It's, it's the bass part that provides the richness of the song, I think. Particularly during this instrumental part, listen, listen to the bass line in this instrumental part here. Thanks for listening. That does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself. 